John 16, uh, verse 33. I'm gonna read it from the Passion Translation. This is how it reads. Everything I've taught you is so that the peace which is in, is, is in me will be in you and will give you great confidence as you rest in me. For in this unbelieving world, you will experience trouble and sorrows, but you must be courageous for remember, I have conquered the world. Amen. Father God, let's, we just want to give this time to you. And all of the words that I'm about to share, God, I pray that somehow you'd be able to speak through them. God, you, you come in your power, Holy Spirit, and uh, say exactly what you need to say for each and every person in this room. You, you somehow can do that. And so um, I don't know how you do it, but I, I'm trusting that you can this morning. I know that there's hurting people in this room, and God, I pray that you would minister this morning. In your mighty name we pray, amen and amen. All right, you can be seated. So we've been in this series called Don't Waste Your Life, um, and what an incredible way, I think, to start a new year. And in this series, um, we had been planning from the very beginning to do a message about pain. And the, the reason why is because all of us go through it. Right? And there's not a person sitting in this room right now that hasn't been through loss, um, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a career, the loss of a dream, um, the loss of a relationship. And, and, and we find ourselves in difficult places in life. And so the question is, what do you do with all that suffering and with all the tears and with all the pain and with all the hardship? We can either just kind of throw that all away kind of try to ignore it, kind of stuff it, or we can use that for a greater purpose. And so as we get closer, as we got closer to this weekend, I thought about the story of Catherine and Jay Wolf. I've heard them share several times, and I wanted to share their story with you this morning. Catherine and Jay, they are originally from the South, and they met in college and married and moved to LA to pursue law school for Jay and the entertainment industry and modeling uh, for Catherine. Their son, uh, James, was born in 2007, and just six months later, um, Catherine miraculously uh, survived a catastrophic stroke that it was caused by a congenital brain defect that she never knew that she had. And um, so after a 16-hour brain surgery, 40 hours in the ICU, a year in neuro rehab, and 11 operations... She continues her recovery to this day. In 2015, she gave birth to a miracle baby, John, they call him John Baum, um, who has blown up in their lives in every kind of way. And in, since 2008, they have been disrupting the myth that joy can only be found in a pain-free life. Can I say, can I say that again? That's, I, disrupting the myth that joy can only be found in a pain-free life. Through speaking, um, they've written a couple of books, uh, some best-selling books, um, through an online community that they have, and the Hope Heals Camps for families affected by disability. So today, they live in Atlanta with their two boys. And so maybe you've experienced where one day you have this picture of your life and what it's going to be, your future, and you know, maybe you know, what the day ahead is going to look like, and all of a sudden... <laughs> That's hanging by a thread and everything is turned upside down. 
Everything feels like it's falling apart. Um, and that happened for the Wolf family on April 21st, the year 2008. Catherine was rushed to UCLA. It was very unlikely that she would even survive the surgery. Some, some wondered if they should even try it. It was the worst case scenario, her doctor said, as she walked into the, as she, as she was wheeled into the, the room. The, the biggest sort of malformation that he had ever seen that was rupturing inside of her head and the pressure was squeezing down on her brain and on her spinal column. And it appeared to be pretty unsurvivable. And yet their church family showed up when this happened and they continued to show up and they continued to show up and God and his mercy for whatever reason on that day spared Catherine's life and set this couple off into this new life and in this new normal for them and this second chance at life. And so uh, we're gonna hit the house lights uh, here and, and um, I just want to ask um, if you would give all your attention to the screen and would you watch this with me? This is the story of Catherine and Jay Wolf. Should I say hi? Yeah. Hi. That's weird. Hi, I'm Catherine Wolf, and at 26 years old, I had a massive brainstem stroke and almost died. Was that all? My name is Jay Wolf, and um, what, what was the other question? I forgot it already. Why am I talking to you? So Catherine and I are both from the Deep South. We went to college together at Sanford University. Freshman year, we met in the cafeteria, and we bonded over food there. And I was kind of the safe date, but I weaseled my way in uh, to her affections over some time. After we graduated college, we had a huge blowout wedding that fall. Deep South, all the family, all Southern fried goodness. And that day, on November 6, 2004, began this just radical love story of devotion, of hanging in there with someone for worse, in sickness, forever. Words that our culture doesn't even understand today in regards to marriage. My dad had given us a directive that was frankly a little bit annoying at the time. He said, you know, when you get to LA, you need to plug in and plug into a church and do it, do it fast. Um, Cause in a city that big, you guys being 22 years old, you're gonna get lost in the shuffle really quickly. And we volunteered to lead this young marriage group at the church. For some reason they let us, even though we had no business leading a group on marriage when we were 23 years old and had been married a year. So you see, for the three years before my stroke, we were involved in marriage ministry at church. So day in and day out, we were reading books about marriage, counseling couples about staying married, learning all these valuable lessons. This is a 22, 23, 24-year-old we thought we'd never need, really. And yet, they were in there 
turning around in our head. was wonderful. I was doing some commercial print modeling and James would be booked on modeling gigs with me to be a mother-son team and we were living a dream. All that changed pretty radically one morning in April. I was about three weeks from graduating law school and we were concerned that Catherine might be pregnant. She felt kind of strange and so I had a pit in my stomach as I walked up the hill back to our apartment after class, just wondering if possibly we could be pregnant again, unexpectedly. When I opened the door, Catherine was in the kitchen making some meals for some couples in our Sunday school class. And she told me quickly that she was not pregnant, but she still was feeling off. I was cooking and my hands went numb. My arms went numb, my legs went numb. and. I managed to get over to the TV, turn it off. I felt like it was really loud, and I kind of remember the next several minutes, but not totally, but I'll never forget the look on Jay's face. He was looking into two dilated pupils, and what we think was the very face of a brain that was rupturing. I looked down at her pupils, and they were completely dilated and black, and I knew something was really wrong. And I yelled and screamed uh, over her, and uh, I called 911 immediately. But as I was taken in that stretcher of the Pepperdine, I remember that strange feeling of, wait, my baby's in the next room. This is my home. I'm, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to go to this. I would never see that sweet baby's nursery again. To our surprise, what we found was one of the most uh, highest grades of arteriovenous malformations that somebody can have. It was a quite a critical situation. The majority of patients that present with a bleeding of that magnitude at, and with a vascular malformation of that size uh, unfortunately die when they, when they arrive in that condition. I saw Jay and he was holding uh, James that 
had just been born and seeing how afraid he was, was really a motivation to go ahead and do the operation for them. I began walking with this whole army of friends and community to the waiting room at UCLA. And that place would become a very sacred place and our friends and family would gather there um, and sing through the night, cry, pray, eat together. Um, the surgery that was supposed to last eight hours lasted 12 and then ultimately 16. So I got by myself in, um, in the prayer chapel at UCLA and I began praying and crying through the book of Job and Romans, and Romans 8 in particular, being Catherine's favorite chapter, gave me encouragement and hope and peace in the midst of something that was so chaotic and, and unknown, where every ring of the phone in the waiting room made my heart stop. The morning of April 22nd, Dr. Gonzalez came out into the waiting room as the sun was rising, and he was absolutely just tired and exhausted, bedraggled looking, and he said, well, she survived the surgery, um, but there will be deficits. We just don't know what those will be yet. She may be in a vegetative state or paralyzed, um, but she is alive. And though those were somewhat hopeless words, for some reason in that moment, I had a deep sense of peace in my heart that Catherine was going to be okay. Around one or two hours after finishing the surgery, I received a call from the nurses of the ICU, and I was expecting the worst. But the nurses were absolutely surprised. They were calling me because Catherine was following commands. They were asking her to show two fingers, and she was doing that. And I, I couldn't believe it. Normally, that doesn't happen to patients that undergo a surgery of this magnitude. So I, I ran to the ICU to see her, and, uh, and she, there was, she was following commands, and, uh, and that was the first of many miracles that happened with Catherine. So that first day, we had gone through such an intense roller coaster of emotions and um, hopelessness and hope, but to be given that sign that she was there inside, that she could hear, and that her body was trying to express that um, was amazing. When I walked through the door to see my wife, who was so full of life and beauty, to be reduced to something so horrific and devoid of life uh, was almost more than I could take. She was hooked up to a multitude of machines and Part of her head was shaved and there was a tube coming out of a hole in her brain. In that moment, the juxtaposition of the wife and the life that I had always known was so severe that I crumpled to the floor in tears and in cries of agony. By the grace of God, somewhere deep, deep down inside of me, I, I still had hope. I didn't react in, in anger towards God for some reason, as painful as it was, I felt he was so pained with me at what Catherine was experiencing. Well, Catherine stayed with us for a long time. At some point, they asked us if they could link her website to the UCLA servers, and of course, we were delighted with the idea. 
What we didn't know was that once they link her website, has been probably the only time in the history of our service that were crashed because of the amount of people that was logging to see her story. And there was a chain effect of prayers that I believe had a significant effect in her recovery. There were people all around the world listening to the story of Catherine and praying for her recovery. Catherine was in the ICU on life support for 40 days, which in a weird way was encouraging. That symbolic number of 40, sort of being in the wilderness in exile for that period on the way to something promising and hopeful. And yet, we had very little clue what would be next in terms of dark valleys. Waking up in the acute rehab almost two months after my brainstem stroke or my AVM ruptured was surreal in every sense of the word. I just couldn't quite catch on. My family was there, my friends were there, people would come in and out of the room and I just was receiving them all the time. It was like a true Southern lady would have visitors come and visit. It was bizarre. Here I am hooked up to many, many machines with the tracheotomy in my throat and the feeding tube in my stomach, IVs, and it was strangely normal. I don't know how that can be, but it just felt like in that weird place my brain was like, oh, okay, this is what I do now. I, I lay here for days and nights and weeks and months. And while I, I was okay and in engaging and embracing my new life, there was this strange, horrible sadness of, wait, okay, now I need to breastfeed my son because that's what I do. I'm a mother, I breastfeed my son. And if they put up my bed a bit, and I'm very modest, so we'll get the men out of the room and we can navigate this. And of course I had no idea that he'd been fed for months now by other people from a bottle. And I didn't do that anymore. And no one told me that. So I just had to realize that. That was very, very sad. I am so thankful that I had the six months and five days that I did with James for bonding before my stroke. But I can remember feeling like this hurts in a way I can't fully wrap my mind around. Because of the trach and also some paralysis in her mouth and on her tongue, she really couldn't speak. Similar to her love of food, Catherine also loves to talk, as anybody who knows her would say. For her to be unable to articulate what she was feeling was so unlike the Catherine I'd ever known and so disorienting. So I would use a letter board and I would type with my working left hand letters and that would speak words. So I would frantically over and over crank out on that letter board, I'm the same on the inside. I'm the same on the inside. I'm the same on the inside. Almost four months after Catherine's stroke, it was time for her to move on. And yet she was still really, really 
at all. We made the decision to move up to Casa Colina, which was a longer term rehab facility. That was one of the most horrible nights that I remember in the whole process. And we cried in each other's arms and I didn't want to leave and she didn't want me to, but I had to. We knew that for her to have any chance of living her life again, she would have to step into this valley. It's as if your worst nightmare comes true to enter a brain rehab. Where I'm highly messed up on the outside, most are highly messed up on the inside. And it was horrifying because, of course, this was my new peer group. The swallowing therapist there sat me down and told me to prepare myself for the worst case scenario, which was most likely for Catherine that she probably never swallow again. This is particularly um, devastating to me because as, as I mentioned, Catherine and I met in the cafeteria in college and her love for food is kind of legendary uh, among anyone who knows her. And I think in that moment, I questioned, God, why would you allow this particular thing out of so many things in Catherine's life that might be taken away. Why would you allow this thing, the one thing that she loves so much, to be taken from her? Eating is about so much more than just food consumption. Eating is life. Eating is what humans do. It's how they socialize. You meet for a cup of coffee, you have a drink, you get together as family. Holidays, everything is about food. And yet, you can't eat. You're in this weird world all alone. There's, there's no sense of connection to people over a meal or a breaking of bread. It's very, very isolating because you're no longer a participant in life. You're watching life. When I was still in the wheelchair full time and not eating, I often thought that I would rather never walk again and be in a wheelchair for life than never eat again. I was due for my ninth swallowing test in November of 08. Now I knew first year I would pass this test. I just knew that's what God had for me. I mean, I had not been eating and then, yay, I'm gonna be eating for Thanksgiving dinner. So you can imagine what happened. I took the swallow test and I didn't pass it. So Jerry and I returned to our little house right outside of the brain rehab, and my in-laws had flown in. Now, I looked up, and my three sister-in-laws are playing with my son. I'm sitting in the back of the room in the wheelchair. I can't even hold my head up. My neck would lay on my chest because I wasn't strong enough yet. I just failed my ninth swallow test. And I'm thinking, God made a mistake. I should have died. I can't eat. I can't walk. I can't take care of my son. My face is messed up. I can't hear. I can't see. I can't do anything. Surely, this is not right. This is a mistake. And before that thought could even fully land, I had this moment of 
Catherine, are you crazy? I know better than you know. I'm God, you're not, A. And B, I don't make mistakes. So there is purpose in all of this. Just wait, you'll see. And after over a year in that neuro rehab, I got to leave and I healed tremendously. Nothing was perfect. As you can see, nothing is perfect. And I doubt it ever will be perfect again. And actually, it wasn't perfect before. I was allowed to eat food again on March 25th, 2009. And it was a glorious day when I was allowed to eat after 11 months of no food. I began to walk again on October 21st, 2009, which was exactly 18 months after my brain rupture. In October of 2010, I went in for my routine checkup with my neurosurgeon. Now, this is two and a half years almost after the rupture of my AVM. He held back tears as he told us that I have a small aneurysm behind my left eye. But I want to communicate to you that I don't hang out at that place, a fear of questioning what might happen. I think there's something profound about hope. I think there's something so meaningful when you cling to something beyond what you know and understand. And when that's in there, deep in your head and in your heart, and you believe it with every ounce of your body, something happens. Hope heals. Grit hurts the most, which is your soul. It's an incredible story, isn't it? Um, oh. Holy Spirit, I just, I pray right now that um, you would speak, you would continue to speak this morning. Um, maybe you've been through something harder than you ever thought could have happened to you, but on the other side, um, maybe it's better than you could have ever imagined. Uh, maybe you're still in it. And um, I just, I just want to point out in this story that, um, you know, you can see God at work through the framework of the whole story. And it, and it makes no sense otherwise. But God is a God 
of life and of love, and he's a God of second chances. And in the story of Catherine and Jay, they, they have this second chance to be a couple and to be a family and to use their life as a vessel that showcases him to the world and to many, many people in need. And I don't know if it captures, quite captures Catherine's spirit in this video because I wish we could have him here today. Every time she walks into a room, the atmosphere is joy. <laughs> She won't let it be anywhere else because she's just kind of the bomb that disrupts the room with her joy. And, um, I, I, but, but let's talk about us. What does God want to do in your suffering? We, we all, we have all sorts of people in this room and everybody at all different kinds of of pain, and, and that's why we're talking about this today. And I think it's so important to let everybody know that we're sharing our hope in Jesus, not only once we come through a miracle, because we know that God is a God of miracles, not only once we've come through a miraculous healing or a transformation, and God does perform miracles every single day, but we're not just talking about the healing and everything is so much better now, but also from the place of, I'm pretty messed up still. I'm, I'm pretty much, I'm, I'm in a place of pain right now. I'm in a place of hurt. And I think that's part of what is so powerful. All of our stories today are not, you know, already transformed lives, but, but we're talking about the fact that, you know, several of us in this room are battling emotional battles maybe of depression or anxiety. Uh, it's talking about the fact that some of you, um, people who you love, or maybe even you, they're paralyzed or legally blind or was diagnosed with cancer, et cetera, et cetera. And there, there's, there's some significant brokenness in someone, you know, in some of our stories. And so pretending that everything is perfect actually doesn't help you doesn't reach anybody in any way, but what if we could use our brokenness and even think of it as a special seat that I get to proclaim the goodness of God in the midst of it? And that actually is what moves people. And so that's our big idea for today. So don't waste your pain by using your brokenness to proclaim the goodness of God. And this isn't an easy message to preach, but you know, the truth is there's trouble in our life. There's trouble in our world. Jay talks about, you know, their experience. We, you know, he, this is what he says. We always went to this hospital setting and Catherine had been in the ICU for those 40 days. And I have to say there were glimpses and there's always glimpses of God working if we have the eyes to see it. Just because he's silent and I I've felt that in my life. I don't know if you have. If he feels like he's silent, doesn't mean that he's abandoned us. And then he says, you know, sometimes, this struck me, this statement right here. Sometimes we'd almost rather stay in the ICU because it's comfortable, ironically. And God's calling us out of these places of safety to places of recovering and healing but sometimes it's so unknown and so scary and so hurtful. And for us, that season was brain rehab, where literally there were people who were dying and they were so sick. And even in Catherine's therapy group that they were literally dying during therapy. And so we're witnessing not only that, but people who have lost their cognitive abilities and emotional abilities and several people who are just kind of raging on the inside. And that came out at all of us. And it was just kind of a place of darkness spiritually is what he talked about. 
And so he says there were times then that it really felt like God would continue to highlight the people that were in front of us, the people that nobody else was able to reach, the grown men, quadriplegic with their aging parents sitting next to them, they're weeping because they can't even kill themselves even though they feel like they want to. And that these are the people who God says, that's him. I want you to go tell him that this isn't the end. God brought us out of that, he says, almost two years in hospital and rehab settings to then be able to go back to our community in LA. And that's where she was telling the story. And you know, sometimes we often think that, you know, when we've been through some hard stuff, that we can sort of check that off of the list, you know, like check off the suffering box. I've done that, right? And, and then we can go to the vacations and the dreams and, the, and everything else. But when Kay and, and uh, Jay and Catherine, they moved back to their home in LA and to their community of friends, that's when her doctor came in with the news about that um, aneurysm behind uh, her eye. And he was crying when he walked into the room. And so he said to Catherine, you have an aneurysm behind your good eye. And I'm so sorry because I can't even begin to tell you how painful this is for me. And they talk about remembering that moment that they had thought, well, at least the brain stuff was gonna be off the table. I thought that was over. And on that day and to this day, God was saying to them, do you really want me or do you just want what you think I'm gonna give you? Do you want the gifts or do you want the giver? Do you just not want to hurt anymore or do you want the deliverer of all of the hope in the world? Jay wrote in their book, Suffering Strong, he says, as we progressed through all the pain together and found God in the midst, we were surprised to find that our hearts did not have to shrink in self-defense. Rather, our hearts were filled to overflowing with the comfort that we so desperately needed and our burgeoning hope could spill out onto those in need. We were the receivers we who, let me say that again, we who were the receivers became the givers. And in so giving, we were continually refilled and encouraged by the realization that none of our suffering could be wasted. Let me read that again. We were the receivers but then we became the givers. And so in giving, we were continually refilled and encouraged by the realization that none of our suffering would be, what? Wasted. <laughs> That's our word right there. That caught my eye. Our suffering would not be wasted. He says that waiting room at the UCLA hospital became the most holy experience of our lives. God spared Catherine's life as we were petitioning and there was a hundred people in their church family and, and family and friends that had gathered that the night of her first of her surgery. But then what was really profound and it was a turning point in Jay's life was to sit next to other people in that same waiting room because we'd been there. And other people going through the worst day of their life and now we could be there instead of just turning a blind eye. 
And, and that's understandable, isn't it? Because we've all got enough pain. Everything in us says, you know, why would you add somebody else's pain? You've, you know, you've already got enough of your own, right? But then Holy Spirit gives you the strength to open yourself up. And when we all shoulder each other's pain, right? That's what the church is, to lift each other up and to, to the load is lightened. Jesus even says, we said it earlier, the burden is light with me. The burden is light with me. Why? Because we're all shouldering each other's pain. He carries it for us. God gives us um, this sort of sense of what Holy Spirit's given us through his comfort and the hope that we receive. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, it's not just so that we can be comfortable. Not just so that we can feel better about our own situation and our own pain, but that we can now give it away. And that maybe is more counter to our nature than anything, right? To give away the precious things that we've been given, right? But God says, what I'm gonna do is that I'm gonna then fill you back up through the giving. <laughs> you empty yourself out and guess what? I'll fill you back up. It's a cycle and so now you get to pay it forward and you get to go back to those places where others are hurting and I know you don't wanna go there but because I've taken you out of them, you can go tell people who are on the brink of despair that it's not the end for them. And I've talked about this a little bit because I think this is important. Um, for the, the first time in early 2021, I was clinically diagnosed for the first time as depressed and um, there were a lot of factors leading to that, just like there can be in all of our lives. Um, but I was um, at first embarrassed. I had, I had never had that said about me before. Um, and I had uh, never admitted much of any kind of uh, emotional pain to doctors, let alone, you know, the people around me in my life. And, and I've got to say... Um, just even going through the process of opening up and confronting it, I, I found a lot of healing. And thank God in my circumstance, you know, it, it, it came relatively, I say relatively, quickly. And I, I had the support of a bunch of people who came around me and are still coming around me and lifting me up and still check up on me regularly. And that is huge. You need people like that in your life. You need people like that in your life. So come to find out, um, as a pastor, um, I've, I've talked with lots and lots of people who are hurting over the course, especially of the last couple of years. And I didn't plan my pain. <laughs> um, and I don't have a theology that God gave it to me either. That's not my theology. He's a good God. Um, but I do believe that God can use what the enemy had planned for evil, and he can use it for my good, and he can use it for the kingdom's good. And, and so for the first couple of months, you know, walking through and kind of out of that depression, I had more people walk into my office struggling with depression than I had ever experienced in my lifetime. And I had, um, I, I, I'd been a pastor, you know, for 22 years and, and, and because of, I had shed tears and because I had suffered in the darkness and because, um, you know, I had kind of walked through learning more about this kind of pain from other people, you know, who, uh, and friends who struggled uh, and doctors who were educating me, I was able to encourage and have real empathy for those who were walking through that same thing. And to top it off, you know, I was 
able to share my joy on the other side of it. Why? Because I'm fueled by something that's not of me. It's not of this world even. And it's so easy for, for us to get caught up in, in navel gazing and self-focus. Like, what was me? I can't believe that this happened to me. This is really hard. And I am not, listen to me, I'm not downplaying anyone's pain. I, life can hurt, pain is real, depression and the weight of it is so heavy. And I've gone through some of that myself, but I wanna challenge all of us. We carry Jesus, the hope of glory with us wherever we go. And so you have the joy of the Lord on tap inside of you. And there's a world that wants to know and needs to know about that hope, that love and that healing. So a lot of us knowingly or unknowingly, you know, we've come through this story of faith where we've, uh, you know, kind of linked together this idea that if you love God and you, you love Jesus and you follow God, he's going to bless you and everything's just going to go great, right? There's not going to be any hardship or suffering. God's just going to make life amazing for you. And yet here you are maybe with an inverted story and you're saying, no, I'm in the middle of hardship right now. I'm in the middle of suffering. But with your heavenly perspective, you are not looking this as something's wrong with your life. You're looking at this as an opportunity for your life. Make the most of every opportunity. How can suffering and Jesus fit together in the same faith? So the reality is we're anchored in something. We're anchored in Jesus, right? Hebrews 6 maintains that we have this hope that is an anchor for our souls. It is a transcendent thing. So when the storms of life come and when the sufferings come, whether they're outside or inside of us, there is something that gives us this assurance that we won't be taken down by the storm. We're grounded on the rock and we are anchored in Jesus. So I, I, I have this picture that I want to put up on the screen, which represents us holding on to the anchor. <laughs> we have an anchor that we can hold on to in the midst of the storm and in the midst of the waves. And Jesus is the forerunner, right? He's gone ahead and he'll ride out any wave. No problem. <laughs> he'll ride it all out. But he first went to the cross. And in John 16, 33 says, everything that I've taught you is this so that the peace which is in me will be in you. The peace that's in me is going to be in you and will give you great confidence as you rest in me. For in this unbelieving world, you will experience trouble and you will experience sorrows but you must be courageous for I have conquered the world. Come on. So when trouble comes, it might make you question everything. You might think it's all gonna fall apart, but Jesus says, you know the end. You know that I've gone ahead of you and I'm even preparing a place for you, and, and, but I'm gonna do something in your life that's gonna be a blessing that's gonna go beyond anything that you could even imagine. But I'm not gonna do it in spite of your suffering. I'm gonna do it through it. Right in the middle of it. Let me be your anchor. 
Let me be your anchor. Suffering provides a platform. Maybe that's significant for somebody to write down today. It does. Suffering provides a platform. And, and, and what have we been talking about all through this series, if you've been with us, stewarding opportunity, right? So much of life is stewarding your story and stewarding suffering is no different. Don't waste your pain. Use it. It's part of your story. Use it. And I'm, I'm gonna quote Catherine on this next part so I don't get in trouble. <laughs> but this is what she says. Now, just, just imagine this, you know, somebody whose personality everybody knows, this is a person of joy. She says, listen, get over it if your life isn't what you wanted. <laughs> no one has the perfect life. It doesn't exist. So we might as well take everything that life throws at us and use it for his glory. And I want to read just a little bit more of what Catherine wrote because I think there are people in this room who can identify. Um, it was the day before Thanksgiving and, and she was in a tough spot and she said, I found myself wondering, has God made a mistake? Remember when she said that in the video? Has God made a mistake? Should I have died? I'm, I'm caught between life and death. I can't even walk or eat or play with my kid. And I've gone from making lasagna in my little kitchen to being fed all my meals through a tube in my stomach. You know, I've, I've gone from going on play dates with girlfriends to attending courses on disability adjustment. I used to power walk the hills of Pepperdine and now I have two physical therapists and a walker while I agonize for just one step. But then something really, really, really amazing happens when you turn the page in the book. And I mean, she, she was thinking all the thoughts that the enemy was feeding her. You know, if I would have died, Jay could remarry. Um, James could have, uh, could have have a normal mommy. Um, I don't fit here. I'm caught between life and death. I can't even eat or walk or speak. This can't be what God intended. This can't be my story. And I know some of you may feel that way, even where you're at right now. And in that terrible moment for her, Catherine was all of a sudden overwhelmed by the awakening of scripture that she had known and believed since she was a small child. And I just want to point out that this was months after what happened to her. So if you do not feel this way in your pain right this moment, sometimes it can take a while for the light to shine through, but there's hope. And she heard deep in her soul, so many truths all of a sudden come rolling out like once, like crazy rapid fire. God was saying through the power of his word that I knew that not only am I not a mistake, God has in fact set me apart. This is unique. This is special. Most people will not have this kind of a deal. And Psalm 138 is true. I was fearfully and wonderfully made in my mother's womb, which is where the mass formed, you know, all, all those years long ago, Romans 8, 28 says that in all things, you'll somehow work them out for good. And Exodus 14, 14, that I need only be still and know that he's God over all. There were so many verses that were just coming out rapid fire, but the overarching one was Ephesians 4, 1. And I love that because we've been camping out in Ephesians for this series. Ephesians 4.1, that God was saying, I have called you to this special thing and live a life worthy, worthy of this calling that you have received. The Passion Translation says, walk holy in a way that is suitable to your high rank, given to you in your divine calling. 
Walk in a way that's worthy, that's suitable to your high rank. That moment changed everything and and that kind of thinking changes everything for us and suddenly it becomes, you know, I want to live a life that is worthy, no matter what. It will lift your head and it will transform your thinking and transform how you look at a situation. So um, just a few quick takeaways from Jay and Catherine's story and they're so good. Um, How do we not waste our pain? Number one, Renarrating the hard parts of your story can be your path to healing. Jeremiah 31, uh, 21 and 22 says, so set up signposts to mark your trip. <laughs> Get a good map. Study the road conditions. The road out is the road back. In other words, you're, you're gonna find your way back to your, your home, which is in him. God will create a new thing in this land. A transformed woman will embrace the transforming God. So remembrance asks us to willfully and thoughtfully retell our stories with a bold, underlined, all caps emphasis on the hidden treasure and the triumph. What we remember teaches our brains what to expect. So by remembering the past thoughtfully, we can anticipate a future with hope. The past can't be erased. However, the way that we engage with it in the now is totally up to us. So re-narrating the hard parts of your story. Um, Number two, we're gonna go through these quick. So there's a lot of scriptures I put in your notes that I'm not not, not gonna have time to share, but follow along. Number two, your brokenness becomes beautiful when you see trauma as an opportunity to grow. Trauma can be more than a dark pit of despair or some kind of spiral into depression. It has the potential to be our deepest source of empathy, maybe our strongest point of connection and and sometimes the most forceful impetus for growth if we just bravely choose to let others into both the brokenness and the mending. So let it be an opportunity for you to grow. How many of you have experienced, you don't need to raise your hand, but how many of you have experienced strength as a result of going through some pretty tough stuff? Number three, choose to redefine loss as a new beginning rather than an ending. Here's the thing, no matter what you've lost, Jesus in us vanquishes the fear of death and loss. So Jesus gives us permission to live with open hands and whole hearts, laughing without fear of the future because in the end, our future is with him. So choose to redefine that hurt, that loss as a new beginning rather because you know that he holds the future. Number four, your ultimate success is allowing yourself to be known even in your failure. What do I mean by that? Stop trying to be Mr. or Mrs. You know, tough guy or tough, tough girl. <laughs> Once you take the vulnerable step of allowing someone, allowing your father to see the, the fullness of your pain and your failures and you just kind of open yourself up and, and you embrace the freedom of being fully known, then you can be truly loved. I'm talking about people around you too. To be fully known is to be fully loved. And so I, I come back to Romans 8, which, which they said was 
was Catherine's favorite chapter. I, I, I mean, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, no powers, no height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Your ultimate success is allowing yourself to be known by him. Number five. You become truly free when you walk away from shame. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. Walk away from shame. Beauty can be found in daily surrendering the shame of our imperfections and picking up the love and the truth that Jesus offers us. Amen. I'm going to keep on rolling through. Number six. I don't know how many times I've already said this this morning or in this series, but this, I mean it. True community is a part of healing. True community is a part of healing and allows you to be part of healing in the world. In Jesus' world, community is neither incidental nor accidental. Community is the intentional surrender of our time and our money and our comfort and our emotional energy and interest of giving to the healing of our neighbors and ultimately the healing of the world. And that can also give back to us, right? Get yourself in a group of people, connect in a connect group, get face to face with some people. True community is part of your healing. You need it. You need those people around you. Community requires us to surrender the comforts of me to the strengths of we. <laughs> to surrender the comforts of that I go to. A lot of us, a lot of us are personalities. We immediately go to isolation and insulation. To the, it comes to the power that comes from we those around us that are lifting us up, holding us up. And then the last one, or I guess second to last one, hope is a future promise that you can live out in the present. Hope is a future promise that you can live out in the present. We practice preaching the truest story to our own souls, right? Why so downcast, oh my soul? Why? God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. <laughs> so hope is a future promise that you can live out in the present. And then the last one, number eight, God chose to believe that the good story and the hard story can be the same story. When we choose to embrace the stories that we're living and release the stories that we wished for, we can know even in the deepest places that our story is being written by a God who loves us beyond measure and we can trust him. We can trust him. We can trust him. Um, and before we close, you know, if you want more resources on this topic, I just want to point you to Catherine and Jay's website again, hopeheals.com. Um, they have uh, two books that they have written if you want to dig in deeper. Uh, a lot of the talking points that we just went through here, kind of the action steps were taken right from their study guide. So good, so good. And, and so follow them on all their socials, find their speaking schedules, their podcasts and articles. They have a lot of resources. But, you know, our hope, all of this, it, it comes back to our hope is in him. Hope heals, hope heals. He is our hope. He's our hope. He is our hope. And so when we find ourselves in him, 
no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the storm, no matter what the sickness, no matter what the pain, I can find purpose in the pain. I, I can even find, I can go back into to my own stories and I can find you know, peace in the middle of the pain. I can find hope in the middle of the pain. Sometimes I, I don't realize it when I'm in the midst of it. Sometimes I do. It's the most real thing that I've ever experienced. So no matter where you are, that's what I'm saying is the, the, what I'm encouraging you to do is find your hope in him. Just go to him. You know, we're so good. We started out this morning. We're so good at carrying our own stuff and our own, our own kind of hurts and problems and troubles. And we walk around, it's so heavy and it's given us a backache and it's, it's causing so much turmoil in our lives and so much pressure and, and even affects our health and our emotional well-being. And Jesus is there saying, let me take it. Let me carry it for you. My burden is light. My burden is light. So Jesus, we just come to you. And it's my prayer this morning. And I, I, wanna, I wanna be faithful in praying this every day. God, let me, I don't wanna carry something that I shouldn't be carrying. And I know I'm guilty of that, Lord. I, I don't wanna carry the shame. I don't want to carry the, the weight of my past mistakes. Lord, you've already washed those white as snow from as far as the east is from the west. God, you are a God of grace and you're full of love. And so when we come to you, we come to you as a loving father who just wants to, to hold us and take that weight off of us release it from us and say, hey, we might be in a storm, but I am here with you yesterday, today, forever. And though you might not see it, I just, I just want you to hold on because there's a story beyond what you might be able to see right now. And there's a purpose beyond what you might be able to see right now. Maybe you prayed a prayer with all of your heart and you lost somebody and you don't understand it. I don't understand it either. But there's a, there's a reason. God didn't take your loved one from you. That's not who he is. He's a good God. We live in a broken and, and a hurting world. And he can take whatever the enemy has planned for evil and he can change it into good. So God, we step into that promise today. Your promises for us are good. So we just lay, again, we lay all of our stuff at your feet this morning, God. I, I just really believe that there is some stuff that is being laid at your cross today. Some of the weight that we've been carrying, that we've been burdened with is being laid down even right now. God, we just thank you. We thank you for taking that from us. God, you are faithful and you are good. Are faithful and you are good. And we look to you as our good, good Father. If you're here this morning and if you've never given your life to Jesus, maybe you're in a place where you feel like, you know, after hearing 
this this morning and you've been suffering, you've been going through some stuff and maybe you've kind of rejected the love of the Father because you thought he had something to do with it. And that's, that's real, that's, that's happened for a lot of people um, in our culture. And they've kind of given up on God going through loss and pain. And I just, I just want you to know that you can trust him. You can trust him with your pain this morning. You can trust him with the hurt. And he can give you peace that passes understanding. He's a comforter. He's good at that. His name is the Prince of Peace. So if either one of those, if, if you need to have a coming back or resurrendering this morning, or maybe saying yes to Jesus for the first time, I want to follow him in my life. I want to give you that opportunity. So I'm just going to say some words this morning. And there's nothing magical about this moment, but I just want to put some words out there for you to say out loud with your mouth. You confess and say, this is my life, Lord, and I want to give it to you. And we're all going to say it together. If that's you with nobody looking around this morning, every head bowed and every eye closed, and you're going to pray either a prayer of resurrender or a prayer for the first time, would you just raise your hand? Because I, I don't want to embarrass you. I just want to know um, and agree with you this morning. Father God, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, let's pray this together. Lord, I give you my life. I give you everything that I've been carrying. And I lay it down at your feet this morning. That weight is not mine to carry. You've told me that, and I believe it. You said it. So it is done. You are a healer. And I want to hold on to you. There were your hope this morning. So all I have is yours. I surrender. And I want to follow you with my life. Your mighty name I pray. Amen and amen.